Hey, what's up, everyone? So real quick, I am uh, giving you another episode of LGBTR, uh, this time with James Earl Hardy. And uh, I was very excited at the time to actually get the interview with him um, because, you know, he's, he's up there as far as one of the people to read when you're trying to get into uh, black uh, gay literature. So, um, yeah, listen in. Uh, he has some interesting uh, points to make, and uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, I think you will, too. So uh, let me know what you think online as well. And uh, I will see you tomorrow for another episode of Uncommuted. Thanks. Hey everybody, my name's Jared King, and welcome to The Read. Uh, today I have a very special guest that I know a lot of you are excited about. Um, so I just wanted to give you a quick disclaimer. Um, I know that I said that this would be an audio-only interview, um, and I thought that I would have like a picture on the front um, that I would be able to, so that you wouldn't have to be look at me the whole time, but um, we're just going to go with what Facebook is letting me do. <laughs> so uh, with that, I'm going to introduce today's guest. Uh, today's guest is an inspiration to many. His work spans fiction, plays, and even biography. He wrote B-Boy Blues, which was hailed by author Elin Harris as the first gay hip-hop love story. Today we're discussing his connections to various celebrities, a big rumor around B-Boy Blues, and all of the lessons learned from an amazing career. Everyone, give it up for James Earl Hardy. Hey, James, how's it going? Oh, I think it's Jude. Everything is good. How you doing? Everything's great. Everything's great. Um, so, what uh, what was it like growing up gay in Brooklyn um, in terms of friends, family, school, schoolwork, etc.? Um, well, I guess I didn't grow up with a concept of gay. I knew I was different from other boys, but kept that to myself. Um, I rarely heard anything negative said about gay people. You know, just the usual schoolyard daggers of sissy and faggot being thrown around. Um, and I didn't officially recognize being gay until I was in my, I guess, late teens. Okay. And even then, it was just a, it was sort of like a convenient identifier, nothing more. I mean, it had no political or cultural relevance for me, especially since everything about it was cast in whiteness. All right. Um, and it wasn't until I discovered the phrase, things that I love it. Um, in my 20s that it all started to come together. I mean, I finally had a, a framework, I guess you could say, from which I could sculpt a sexual identity that affirmed me socially, emotionally, spiritually, stuff like that. So, Okay, interesting. Um, now, a quick note to the viewers. If, uh, if I'm having any sound issues at all, please let me know in the comments here. Uh, the Facebook Live is new to me, and I'm holding up my phone. It's on speaker, holding up my phone to the to the mic, um, so it should be working okay. But just let me know. 
Um, so, uh, James, in your Amazon bio, uh, it says B-Boy Blues was prominently featured in Spike Lee's Get on the Bus. Uh, you also wrote his bio um, in the Black Americans of Achievement series. One could assume you two were close friends. So what is your relationship to Spike Lee and how did these two instances come about? publications in the late 80s and early 90s. So um, when B-Boy was released, many critics made the connection between us. You know, diminutive gents from Bed-Stuy with, with, with a unapologetically black voices. Mm. Um, I think that's partly why Chelsea House publishers approached me about the bio. Okay. Um, and as a, I guess you could say as a quick pro quo, Isaiah Washington held a copy of a novel in the film to help define his character. Uh, and of course, <laughs> a lot of copies were sold because of that. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so now I know that you also wrote the biography for Boys to Men. Was there a similar um, way that that came about as well? Um, what was the relationship there? And what made you pick them as a subject? I've never met the boys in person, um, although I did interview them um, also like Spike over the years. Uh, but because of the success of the Spike Lee bio, uh, Chelsea House asked me to do one on them. And so naturally I jumped up at that, jumped at that chance. All right. Awesome. <laughs> um, so now we know that you obviously have a love for success stories. Um, but you chose to tell one that normally many would not touch. Uh, you penned the play Confessions of a Homo Thug Porn Star, which tells the story of the adult star Tiger Tyson. Um, so what prompted you to tell this story, and why did you feel it was important to tell? Well, um, Tiger's Tale is the quintessential American dream come true just an X-rated version. <laughs> um, kid born to a single mother in the hood, you know, run-ins with the law, turns to stripping and then porn to pay the bills, and eventually uh, starts his own multi-million dollar company. Um, and he's just as animated off-screen as he is on, so I knew he'd be the perfect subject for the stage. Um, and the audience seemed to agree, so. Very cool. All right, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, when, I, when I saw that, I just was like, okay, this is a very different um, subject to, to pick. But as you said, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the, the American dream just played out in a different kind of scenario. Um, so now I wouldn't feel like I would have done my job if we didn't talk about Elin Harris. Um, so you first made contact with him when you asked for a cover plug for uh, B-Boy Blues. It, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and you also contributed to a collection of three stories titled Visible Lives. So how close were you to Elin Harris? Well, I've liked so many black SEO writers, saw him as a big brother and mentor. 
Um, we spoke on the phone um, at least once a month. If he, and if he hadn't heard from me in a month or so, he'd call. Um, he was really good about that. Um, we would literally pass each other on tour, one of us leaving and the other arriving in a particular city, usually. And a few times we were able to just hang out um, are definitely moments I'm always going to treasure. I mean, he was, he was such a gracious and generous gentleman. Um, so what did, uh, what did Elon Harris's work mean to you? Well, I mean, his story, uh, quitting his corporate job, self-publishing Invisible Life, and then selling copies out of the trunk of his own car, uh, was just so inspiring. Um, and Invisible Life was about us. Mm -hmm. Our families, friends, fears, joys, triumphs, and love. So if there was any, any doubt that I could also write a book, he put that to rest. Oh God. It sounds um, and like he that. was literally the godfather of contemporary black gay lit, but also a publishing phenomenon. I don't really don't think he gets credit he deserves. The brother was a rock star. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The man released a book nearly every year in the mid to late nineties and early two thousands. Every single one of them was a New York Times bestseller. There aren't many, if any, black or gay authors who can say that. Um, and for those people who were there, you had to be there to see the kind of effect he had on people. And he was taking our stories, um, into spaces and places we had never been, um, and fostering the type of dialogue that black folks should have already been having surrounding sexuality, faith, community, and love. So, um, I mean, I saw many tissues being passed around at his standing room only events in the Barnes and Nobles and Borders. Mm. And the mother-son duos thanking him for bringing them back together. So, um, yeah. his impact is immeasurable. Yeah, I and mean, I'm, that sounds very interesting. Since he's transitioned, who fancy themselves as the new Elin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, nope. <laughs> Not, never gonna happen. Um, you can imitate, duplicate, mimic, bite, and even copy, but there'll never be another. Right, right. You know, I mean, I think that would almost be a mistake to even try to compare yourself to somebody like that. But, um, so let's, let's move into, let's move into your work. Uh, so what led to the creation of B-Boy Blues? Um, well, back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, there was a wave of novels released, written by black gay men, in which the black gay protagonist was always conveniently attached to a white gay man hmm. and had little to no connection to or with other black people and by extension, blackness. And none of those stories spoke to me. 
And I finally realized that if I wanted to see something on the bookshelf that reflected the world I lived in and the brothers I knew and loved, I'd have to write it myself. Hmm. Now, let me ask you, were those, were those books that you're talking about that, um, I mean, could you, could you name a couple of those books? I mean, not, not to throw anybody out there, but because um, I'm, I'm personally not familiar with uh, stories like that. Um, could you give any examples? Well, um, just, uh, just off, off the top of my head, um, two that come to mind. Um, because I actually met the authors, um, Stephen Corbin's, um, I believe it was a hundred days from now. Okay. And, um, or, or was it fragments that remain? And, um, well, I, I always say his name incorrectly. Larry Dufelshin, I believe it is. Um, it is now the Blackbird. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed, the, the, the books are very well written, um, and I enjoyed them, but just, um, just in terms of identifying with what that particular um, character was going through, I wasn't, I, I, I just, I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why the subtitle, um, on B-Boy Blues is a seriously sexy, seriously funny black-on-black love story. (laughs) Um, I wanted that included on the cover because I wanted people to know up front who the book was about and who it was for. Um, But of course, the reaction I and the novel received from different groups um, only confirmed why that needs to go on the cover. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it basically, uh, most white gays blasted me as being exclusionary for not featuring them. And of course, why wouldn't they expect to be centered given what came before B-Boy? Yeah. Interesting. And racists pointing out that they're white suprem- about their white supremacist tendencies as if white gay people can't be racist. Mm-hmm. Um, heterosexuals of all shades and persuasions couldn't believe that men like Raheem and Mitchell existed. Um, or that they could even fall in love. And too many hip-hop heads and gatekeepers, then and now, won't recognize and accept that hip-hop is a homosocial institution because there are so many homos and bisexuals in it. Hmm. You know, to this day, folks are still asking me who the gay rapper is as if there was and is only one. Pathetic. <laughs> Interesting. Very cool. Um, so, now, the Georgia Voice quotes you from an interview in AOL's Black Voices that you never intended the B-boy, for B-Boy Blues to become a series. Um, so, as an author, I kind of feel in the same boat because I'm kind of continuing a story of my own and... I don't know. I just want to make sure that I'm not kind of grasping at straws. Um, so as a writer, how did you come up with the continuing storyline? And how did you feel in the process of doing that since it wasn't, you know, the original intent? Well, yeah, I didn't think that B-Boy Blues would be a series. 
Uh, I thought it would just be a one-shot deal. And I was actually content with it being a one-shot deal. I, I believe that my journey was to be, well, goal was to be um, an alternate payment writer and reporter at Newsweek. Hmm. Um, and, and I was at Newsweek pursuing that very thing when B-Boy Blues started to take shape. Uh, but B-Boy Blues was the first time I'd ever created something that took on a life of its own. Um, after it was published, Raheem began speaking to me. You know, you create something, you release it into the universe. Um, and literally, I heard him, and he wanted to tell his side of the story. So... I'm glad I listened to him because <laughs> I, I easily could have ignored him. Uh, I mean, there's something, there's something that I want to do. There's a, there's a prize that I have my eye on, but the universe had different plans. And second time around, the sequel is my favorite title in the series. And it made me fall in love with him too. <laughs> so. Very cool. Then it's just been the, you know, a little bit, in Pookie Show, I'm just the vessel through which they speak. Yeah. So uh, wherever they go, I'll follow. Very cool. You know, I um, I kind of have a similar thing. Like, I, I the concept of characters speaking to me or something that really didn't become real until. I actually wrote my first book <laughs> and it's like now I understand it completely. So I think that's kind of like that's one of those writers things that you don't completely understand, you know. <laughs> it's like you you get into it and then they want to do their own thing. They have a, a personality of their own. So I completely understand that. Um so in that same quote in the uh AOL's Black Voices uh article, um it was, you mentioned that there's a rumor out there about you being Little Bit and Tyson Beckford being Raheem. So where did that rumor come from? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe it started because, like Raheem, Tyson is, as Mitchell would say, a chopper drop. Hmm. Who also discovered as a model in a New York City park. So I so I guess that most people reading the novel kind of put that two and two together and decided that, well, of course, this story is true and it's about us. Okay. Um, yeah, I wrote the story a year or so before Tyson debuted, so it's kind of more like life imitating art. Yeah, interesting. And would you say that you're little bit, or or would you say that you share any qualities with that character? Well, I definitely do. Um, well, I, all of the characters are an extension of me um, because the universe that they exist in is very much one that I am a part of. So even if I, I may not be little bit, literally, <laughs> but I know him. Mm -hmm. um, and I know all of the other characters that exist in Pookie and Little Bit's world. 
So it's not my story, but it definitely is a true story. Okay, gotcha. Um, so what has it been like to experience the success of this book or of the series? Um, well, what a blessing it's been and a real joy ride. Um, one of the greatest gifts is knowing that it continues to find us. Um, how I wish I had something like this when I was coming into my own as an STL man. Um, and 20 years ago, you know, I received handwritten letters uh, mailed in envelopes bearing MLK and Ella Fitzgerald's stamps. Hmm. And today it's Facebook and Twitter shout. <laughs> um, but the messages are still the same. And thank you for telling my story, for helping me see that black and gay are not mutually exclusive life stations and that I'm not an aberration or an abomination. And um, B-Boy has been also for me what it's been for so many others, a mirror to hold up, enabling me to embrace, appreciate, value, and love all that I am too. So. Excuse me. Very good. Okay. Um, so now you also adapted this story into a play. Um, so what is it? What was it like to see your characters, um, you know, brought to life by actors on the stage? It's very surreal. I've lived with these characters for decades, and then bam. They literally come to life right before my eyes. It's such an emotional experience that I've cried at every single performance. Wow. <laughs> and I think that this, the discovery is what has made it such um, a thrilling experience because every single actor brings something new to the character they portray. Um, adding layers that give them dimensions that I couldn't in the book. Um, so I'm literally getting to know Pookie a little bit and the rest of the characters again. And even if the actor doesn't quite fit the profile described in the book, which many fans have noted, <laughs> um, they've admitted um, that while at first skeptical, they'll now see um, the stage version of Mitchell or Raheem or BD or Angel as that character whenever they pick up the book again and read. So um, that's just a testament to the brilliance of those performers. Awesome. Um, what was it like to feel like the interaction from the audience even, because I know you're not able to necessarily, I mean, you get that through letters and through Facebook shout outs, but to see audiences perhaps, you know, stand up and give you a standing ovation for something that you created, how does that feel? Was, was that a different kind of experience for you? Um, I think the, probably 
probably the most important aspect of the theatrical experience of Deep Blood Blues is that it really feels like we've recaptured that community spirit that I witnessed in the mid and late 90s when I was on tour promoting the first few books. Uh, folks have to remember that there was no such thing as Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. There was no internet. Um, and literally, I had to go out on tour so that people could understand that, yes, this book was written by a black, same gender loving man. Um, and so that they could actually literally touch me <laughs> and know that it's real. So um, I think the play, in a sense, takes us back to that feeling of communion where we're sharing this experience with so many other people who've never seen anything like this before. Um, and it's very much a revival, in, in a sense. Uh, you know, the, the shouts, the, the call and response, the amens, uh, that you better tell him or you better kick his ass out. <laughs> I, it, 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 um, it brought all of that back to me, um, which is probably another reason why I cry every show, mm-hmm. because it brings all of that back. It takes me back to those times where um, it was so new and fresh. Yeah. Um, and I felt like I was literally a part of a community of people, and I'm and I'm pretty sure that that's why um, those people react the way they do too. So very cool. All right, so um, now I took a look at your Facebook page, um, and if anybody were to scroll through your page, they would get. A, they would see that there was a theme. Uh, so you seem to care very much about the movie Moonlight and uh, gay love in general. Um, so first, let me ask you, why is Moonlight so important to you? Literally, I never thought I'd see a film like it um, in my lifetime. It's such an intimate... Um, portrait of black boys who love boys and the turmoil we face internally and externally. It's an emotional tsunami. Um, But there's much joy to be derived from it. So, and every time I see it, I see and discover (laughs) something new. There's just so many layers to it. And it's just a, a, a beautifully crafted film. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it won Best Picture at the Oscars. But I don't think anybody really thought it would happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, even though we might have, many of us might have felt that it most certainly does deserve it. Um, we don't get movies like it every mm-hmm. day. Um, so it's definitely something to be um, celebrated. Yeah, very cool. Um, so let let me ask you about the second part of that question. So, what's one of the most important lessons you've learned about love? Now it starts and ends from within. 
Okay. I think that's a uh, I think that's a very succinct and clear, concise answer that that's pretty much perfect that I think everybody just needs to take and soak in for a minute. <laughs> um, so I will take that. Uh, <laughs> so what's what's coming up for you in the future? What are you working on? who are in the DMV area, um, Confessions of a Homicide Porn Star returns um, August, 2nd, August 2nd, August 12th, I'm sorry, um, at Joe's Movement Emporium. So um, those tickets will be going on sale very shortly. And Men of the House, a.k.a. <laughs> Little Brother Man Story, uh, which will be the eighth installment in the Beaver of Blue series, is slated for release in November. Wow, okay. Um, and Errol, as he prefers to be called, um, at this particular moment in time, is 15 and a high school senior. And I don't think that there are many portraits of a black heterosexual teen and his black same gender loving father. So um, Pookie and Little Bit Son will be breaking new ground. Very um, cool. With this story. Very cool. Okay. Um, so and I'll be posting excerpts this summer. So um, and of course the the, the play Be One Was the Play um, the debuts in LA and San Francisco, Oakland are still in the pipeline as well as the encores in ATL and DC. And the movie version is on the horizon, so please be patient. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome news. All right, so you have a ton of stuff coming. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> All right, um, so where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, I am on Facebook and Twitter um, under my full name, James Earl Hardy, and B-Boy Blues, B-Boy Blues to Play, and Confessions of a Homicide Porn Star all have their own Facebook pages, so you can definitely like those, too. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm definitely over my limit of friends still <laughs> on Facebook, so <laughs> so please do like those pages all and right. stay in touch Sounds good. Sounds good. I will definitely be doing that. Uh, and I thank you so much for uh, just sharing your time with us today. Um, it was a great, insightful um, interview, and uh, I really appreciated it. Well, thank you so much for um, the hat tip um, and the forum. Um, and as a brother in the, in the word, um, continue to write on Definitely will. Thank you so much. And uh, I just want to say thank you to our viewers for watching. This was, um, you know, a great, uh, great first uh, Facebook Live interview. So um, thank you for at least for sticking around. And, um, you know, I just I hope to do it again sometime. So uh, I, that's it for now. And I will see you later.